0: From the Hydrogen Media offices in London, England, this is Everything About Hydrogen.
1: Hold on. I know if you are a regular listener to the show, you might be thinking this sounds a little bit different from what you're used to. Well, we at Hydrogen Media wanted to share with you that I, Andrew Leedham, am stepping down from presenting the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. It's been a fantastic few years working with my brilliant co-hosts and our incredible producer at Hydrogen Media, but I leave you in the endlessly talented and competent hands of Chris, Alicia, Patrick, and the EAH production team. Thank you for all of your support over nearly 70 episodes of EAH. It's been an absolute blast. And now, for one last time from me, let's get this episode started.
2: So Alicia, how's it going? Where in the world are you at the moment?
3: Oh, this is really exotic. I am in London. (laughs) I am in my very own home.
2: (laughs) That's a rarity these days, is it not?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's exotic. (laughs) Um, It's it's starting to be spring, too. I mean, it's still cold, but lots of flowers coming up, so um, it's a nice time to be here. But I'm sure the pace will pick up again soon, so I'm going to enjoy it while I can. How about you? I don't don't think the pace is uh, very slow for you these days.
2: I was just going to ask. the 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 pace has slowed down. I didn't didn't realize. Well, as we all know, um, in the coming weeks, the the DOE um FOA it's a funding opportunity announcement. Final kind of submissions go in. So there's lots of the. Um, would be hubs about to submit their submission for this uh, these these cost sharing uh, uh, monies, so that's a that's a lot. There's also just a lot of conversation about a lot of different things around hydrogen right now, and it's been a very very busy time I think for everybody. M- lots of folks talking about steel in the ground and like building projects and what it takes to get there, but also lots of questions about you know everything from financing to tax credits. So um, I'd be remiss not to say that between. The stuff this side of the atlantic and obviously the direction that came out of the eu we've got a, a little bit of momentum and a little bit of energy in this in this still first quarter of this year so yeah busy busy times so maybe maybe speaking of busy times who who have we got on today
3: uh we probably have one of the busiest women on the uh, planet so that was a very good segue <laughs> we have uh daria nochevnik she's the director of policy and partnerships at Hydrogen Council and Hydrogen Council, I'm sure is familiar to a lot of people, but it has an interesting story. It was launched at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January of 2017, which which seems very early in hydrogen years. And it was the first initiative of its kind in the world, still is, comprised initially of 13 leaders from the energy, transportation and manufacturing sectors but now includes close to 150 multinational companies, which represent the entire hydrogen value chain. And Daria has spent the last decade working in energy and climate policy, regulatory affairs, and is presently as the director for policy and partnerships with Hydrogen Council. She has focused mostly on her current role, which is hydrogen policy and sustainability as well as partnerships with global intergovernmental organizations like the IEA, um, IRENA, and the International Partnership for Hydrogen and Fuel Cells in the Economy, IPAG, and international initiatives like COP and G7, trying to get certifications um, aligned uh, worldwide. So she has a lot on her plate, and um, I think we'll hear in the interview and just how complicated everything is and and her main goal is is really to to simplify it and to make sure that we can get off the ground running uh, and move faster daria how are you doing today hi
0: hi alicia good good thank you and you how are you doing
3: fantastic we're really excited to have you on the podcast We'd love to hear more about uh, Hydrogen Council and your role there, and maybe even a little bit about uh, the career pathways you followed to get where you are.
0: Thanks so much, Alicia. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's really exciting to be here. Yeah, we know, of course, we know each other quite well already. And um, yeah, we have been cooperating closely in the uh, framework of the work that we are doing with the Hydrogen Council. Um, as many of our listeners would know, the Hydrogen Council is a global coalition of CEOs that represents over 140 industrial leaders in hydrogen around the world today. And um, we, our membership comprises companies across the value chain, from manufacturers of hydrogen fuel cells technologies to producers, TSOs, and uh, companies leading across a suite of Hydrogen fuel cells applications downstream, and we also have a dedicated group of investor members comprising banks, investment companies, and sovereign wealth funds. So the the hydrogen council is really truly a global initiative, CEO led, and um, in my role with the council as director for policy and partnerships, I cover our work on hydrogen policy and regulation, as well as sustainability and um, our cooperation with global government-to-government organizations such as the International Energy Agency, IEA, International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, International Partnership for Hydrogen, and the Economy, IPHE, and our partners leading uh, global international initiatives such as COP and G7.
3: (laughs) So that's quite a bit on your plate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right, and um, it's indeed great to be Part of this global effort to really advance the development of the hydrogen economy in different parts of the world. I came into the, the world of hydrogen from very much from the world of energy market regulation and the design and design of wholesale markets for power and gas, as well as environmental products. So carbon guarantees of origin, green certificates. So prior to joining the council, I work with the effort, the European Federation of Energy Traders. And, um, yeah, I have. Been focusing for many years basically on questions what the decarbonization strategy, uh, in particular in Europe, means for um, the changing energy mix, mean for regulation of wholesale markets, and also the development again of carbon pricing mechanisms and the interaction between different policies. For example, again, those uh, focusing on the ETS functioning, so the function of the emissions trading system. And on the one hand, and then those that are meant to incentivize the development of uh, renewable power and other renewables um, and other types of uh, policy instruments. So I come very much from the world of policy regulation and yeah, design of wholesale markets. And there are lots of lessons learned from those mature commodities that are applicable.
4: Thing. I was going to say, so if you play the um, online FT game where you've got to get the world to net zero by 2050, and you have to make all those different policy suggestions, uh, if I went and asked the FT game designers, would they say that you know their their secret consultant behind the scenes was Daria, who was helping them get all the right buttons together for it?
0: I'm not sure if I would get that one right, but yeah, <laughs> I would like to to, to have a shot at this one. <laughs>
4: Very good. Maybe we should uh, do that as an entry uh, entry requirement for all future um, EAH guests. They have to do the uh, FT. Can you get to one point five by twenty fifty test, and then uh, and then ask them what they did differently. But um, but look, it's really great to have you on the show, and obviously, uh, you know, incredible array of experiences. You you know, even in the very short sort of period of time that you've just been framing them now, um, it doesn't really do justice to the depth of things that you're doing. So I think our listeners are in for a bit of a treat this week. What I wanted to start with is. It's probably a, a very unfair question, but it's probably a question that I guess is on the minds of many in the space um, and probably the one that policymakers slightly dread, which is, you know, if I'm putting you on the spot and asking, you know, what's the most competitive policy framework for green hydrogen in the world today? Where would you say has got it right? I mean, or if not right, I mean, where do you think sort of the most competitive, given your global outlook that you have on this and your experience?
0: Yeah, that's an easy question to start with, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Thanks so much, Chris. Now, I think that I would start by sort of taking a step back and saying that simplicity and certainty are probably the two key ingredients for a competitive policy framework, simplicity and certainty. And I think we have seen that getting to those, getting those two right has been a struggle in many parts of the world. And I think the other dimension of it is uh, we often talk about colours, but but really making sure that we are focus on the carbon footprint and the greenhouse gas emissions and have transparent and common way of assessing the greenhouse gas emissions of hydrogen covering production, conditioning and transport is absolutely key. I'm happy to elaborate on that a little bit later, but if we stick with policies and policy choices now, Interestingly looking across geographies one can see that of course policy choices that decision makers uh, make are very much conditioned by local resource and infrastructure endowments so understandably uh, countries in different parts of the world seek to maximize these endowments and in their transition to net zero and that very much conditions the hydrogen pathways that they choose for themselves and the sort of the priority initiatives across the value chain So that prioritization is very much conditioned by, of course, again, the local context, the resource availability and infrastructure endowments that are already there. When it comes to these two key ingredients, simplicity and certainty, I think that definitely the IRA has been a great inspiration for countries across geographies. And right now we are waiting for the guidelines document to be released by the Treasury. And hopefully that clarity and simplicity of the IRA framework for, and the production tax credits for hydrogen will remain there. And actually IRA will remain one of the best practice policies from design perspective. And we also see that there are some instruments that become increasingly popular. Let's say, for example, the contracts for difference, I imagine now, uh, now as one of the policy instruments of choice, if one can put it that way, in very different geographies from the EU and the UK to Canada and Japan. I think we hear increasingly about uh, yeah, the UK CFD instrument, the one that is now envisaged in the EU. Uh, but in, interestingly, uh, Japan as well is currently looking into designing a CFD scheme to narrow this the price gap between hydrogen and derivatives with um, a variable premium, which uh, is set as a type of CFD. So the strike price uh, will most likely include the supply costs, so including the cost of production, transport, and in the case of ammonia, also cracking and the return, and it is expected to be periodically reviewed to reflect the gradual increase, uh, sorry, the gradual decrease in the cost uh, of hydrogen ammonia as we scale up. And the reference price in the Japanese CFD instrument, uh, so the market price of the counterfactual fuel is expected to be LNG import price for hydrogen, so as a as a counterfactual for hydrogen, and the coal import price will most likely be used as a counterfactual for ammonia. Um, so this is an example, again, of a CFD scheme that is emerging in Japan. We also have global um, international me- mechanisms such as H2 Global uh, that provide for a double CFD on the supply side and on the demand side, respectively, and there is an opportunity to scale up this instrument. Uh, right now, it's of course, it has been adopted by Germany and the Netherlands, and there is an opportunity to scale it up and uh, to adopt it as an enabling instrument for the external leg of the hydrogen bank in Europe. So definitely contracts for difference are emerging as one of those policy instruments of choice in jurisdictions across geographies. But when it comes to the key ingredients for a competitive policy framework, simplicity and certainty are are king. And uh, getting those two right has proven to be rather challenging. And uh, yeah, we can talk about a couple of examples of what we're observing today?
4: Well, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, if I may, and I, it's just a sort of follow up on that one. I mean, I, I think I completely agree simplicity and, um, you know, uh, sort of confidence or certainty, as you say, absolutely the drivers. But maybe, maybe, sort of, just pressing on that point then, you know, the US has given a fixed price, you know, it's $3 a kilo. Meet these criteria three dollars a kilo that's what you're paid let's take aside the fact that there's some issues to do with tax credits that people are debating about um especially linked to the 25 percent minimum tax OECD thing and let's also take aside the additionality debate there which going on in the background as well but just as a principle You know, UK is sitting and fighting its way through CFD. It's probably going to be 500 to 600 pages. And most of the industry told the government it was a bad idea and they're still doing it. (laughs) And Europe is also looking at it. CFD is not simple. It is definitely not simple. Um, And there's not much certainty in a CFD because, as you say, there's a reference price. So you have to figure out what that is, adjust it and move. But that does seem to be a more popular strategy for governments. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Have the Americans got it right and the Europeans and the UK got it wrong?
0: I think that the choices that are made for hydrogen, um, have to be seen through the prism of the historical policy design choices. So if you look at the history of how different legislative measures for renewables and or, um, biofuels have been shaping up in different parts of the world, you know, historically in, in Europe, it has been all sticks and in the US, all carrots, right? So there are slightly different approaches fundamentally to policy design and market design. And again, UK is the the birthplace of liberalized markets. And UK is basically the place and the country that really spearheaded the development of wholesale markets uh, for power and gas, and gas the way we know them today in Europe. So, of course, they're leaning more towards market-based instruments because of that history and the historical policy choices that were made. There is no, of course, right or wrong, we have seen that the CFD can provide a, a very CFDs can be designed in a very robust way in a very effective way. Uh, looking at how CFDs were used, for example, for renewable power, most recently as we were moving away from feed-in tariffs. So I think that there are some good examples of how they can be designed in a thoughtful way, providing again that necessary simplicity and and uh, uncertainty. Even though, of course. A fixed type of instrument like like a like a um, like a PTC uh, is very appealing, but the devil will be in the detail, and that's why I think I've mentioned that um, it would be absolutely crucial to maintain that simplicity and certainty in the guidance that will define the conditions that would enable market participants to actually use those production tax credits. So, making sure that 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 the simplicity and certainty is preserved in the guidelines will be critical for the deployment of the PTC and IRA. We still have to wait and see, but hopefully those two principles will be maintained in the, uh, in the guidance.
3: Well, I think I'm going to be uh, dreaming about simplicity and certainty, um, <laughs> which will be all good dreams if we manage to accomplish that across these different markets. But do you think uh, policymakers have been equally good at supporting consumers or end users Uh, versus hydrogen producers?
0: Um, I think that if we look at the different policy measures and enabling measures for hydrogen that are, again, emerging across different geographies, those have been primarily focused on uh, supply side. And it's true that the demand side measures have been lagging. And this is something that I think we hear about increasingly across different parts of the world, that greater demand side visibility is something that is missing. And... um, Providing that clarity on the demand side can actually create ripple effects and that will really help, um, allow sort of the midstream bit and the, and the upstream bit to follow. So it's a great question. I think that we, as we look across different geographies and across different jurisdictions, there is a lot that has been done and is being done on the supply side. And when it comes to the demand side, yeah, definitely there, the enabling frameworks are less developed. Uh, in the case of Europe, of course, we have some emerging targets on industry and transport. But again, the devil is always in the detail. And we have been, as you know, debating the qualifications for renewable hydrogen for nearly three years now. And we still, there's still no clarity. There were some, um, yeah, developments last week, but this is a good example of how. Complex um, legislative pieces can really, unfortunately, slow down the um, commitments, the, the to the uptake of projects on the ground, and uh, that move from announcements to FIDs.
3: Yeah, I mean, for sure, that is, as you said before, simplicity um, and uh, the clarity, the, the sort of security of of knowing what you're getting is going to encourage investment. Um, investors very much care about regulations that they can rely on. And then, as you say, the, the demand is also, it feels like it's a bit of an iterative dance between the demand and the supply, and nobody wants to be the first one to, to put all the money in. But the regulations can actually help to, to push uh, both sides, I think, forward. Uh, like, like the German program that you were speaking of, which has sort of a matchmaking um, component
4: Well, and I'd actually maybe even go a step further and say, you know, is is actually one of the things here that's needed is, uh, and we've seen this in other places, and Dara, I wonder what your thoughts are, um, you know, just some kind of open recognition from governments of kind of um, retroactive application of support for projects. Because I think that's always the challenge with the first mover piece, right, is that you go first and then, you know, there's a great competition that's announced with CapEx funding or a price support or something, and you go, well, hang on, I'm... I've actually helped move the market. I've helped build confidence. I've created all this dynamic. And actually, we're all being penalized for that. And, um, you know, I I, I wonder whether that is a I know the public finds that hard to get their head around because they go, well, you're going to fund it anyway. So why do we need to step in? But actually, from a market confidence perspective and getting people to stop worrying who's going to go first and who's going to be the potential loser from going first, is that is that something we need to talk about more?
0: There is, there, there is a number of challenges for the first movers because a lot of those critical regulatory frameworks and enabling frameworks for hydrogen across the value chain are in the making, right? And that means that there is quite a bit of uncertainty. And we have spoken about the uncertainty on the uh, upstream side, on the supply side, when it comes to, for example, uh, the definition and qualification uh, of um, renewable hydrogen. Another example um, on the midstream side and Again, zooming in on Europe, we have ongoing legislative process around the so-called hydrogen and gas markets decarbonisation package, which lays out the market rules for hydrogen. And there, there is a discussion about the definition of an import terminals, uh, definition of an import terminal for hydrogen. It's interesting because, of course, we know that currently all infrastructure that are considered as production are not owned by by transmission and storage operators. These in, this type of infrastructure pieces include electrolyzers gas reforming units ccgts and um and th- there is no definition uh of what production is actually so this is not spelled out in regulation but the choices that will be made around and the the decisions that would be made around uh, what infrastructure pieces will be qualified as input terminals and whether or not the crackers will be qualified as part of the import facility and import unit, or as a production unit, that would also impact investment decisions made by uh, market participants going forward.
3: Right, and and I mean, is there also a potential issue with the the varying green or low carbon hydrogen standards worldwide? I mean, do you see a lot of issues with uh, different definitions?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we all know that in different countries. different So legislators are taking different positions on and they're adopting different thresholds for hydrogen to be qualified, for example, as clean or sustainable. And there are different definitions for hydrogen that are adopted across geographies. We know that G7 is currently working on a, um, a labeling system. Um, and there are other initiatives internationally to go beyond standards and really focus on the carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions. One initiative that is absolutely critical that we are supporting as the council is the development of a common ISO standard methodology for assessing the carbon footprint of all hydrogen production, conditioning and transport pathways to really provide that transparency and allow the least carbon intensive solution to shine. So just to give an example, country A may adopt a threshold of, let's say, three kilos of CO2 equivalent to qualify hydrogen as clean or sustainable. And country b can adopt the same threshold let's say three kilos of co2 per kilo of hydrogen but if you ha- have different methodologies to calculate how you arrive to those three kilos you cannot compare the two thresholds and that creates a real then patchwork of approaches and, and, and standards and that may actually create a serious barrier to trade cross-border trade and both in hydrogen and in derivatives. So this is why we are very much supporting the development of this global ISO standard. And by the way, ISO standards are already used as reference in national legislation in the EU taxonomy for sustainable finance. The rules laying out how to uh, assess the carbon footprint of your hydrogen manufacturing activity. It says there are some very specific requirements that provide for the use of ISO standards to qualify your hydrogen manufacturing activity as sustainable. And in a similar way, we see real need for governments to refer to the same standard methodology to assess the carbon footprint of different hydrogen production uh, conditioning and transport pathways and there is actually an opportunity now for government officials and experts to join the iso process so there is a, um, a dedicated work stream under iso tc 197 uh, subcommittee one that is ongoing and uh, all government experts but also a wider community of experts and academics have the opportunity to join this process now and to really shape this common global standard and we see that it we we believe that it's absolutely critical to provide transparency but also to enable in the long in the longer run cross global cross-border trade in both hydrogen and derivatives that piece is crucial alongside certification which is another dimension to this
4: to this process, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one Dara's going to sort of just almost pick up on and go in terms of the ISO certification around that. One thing that I was wondering you could maybe touch on and, and perhaps ISO is a good way into this is, do you feel that there's enough work being done globally to coordinate on safety standards? Because there have been UN and ISO groups around hydrogen safety, but in some ways the regulation at a national level seems to be Um, still quite divergent despite there being this quite international forum i mean you know actually in some ways there's been much more international collaboration on hydrogen safety and iso and a un level for a long time than many people realize but there's still a massive amount of variety at the national level so maybe you talk a little bit about the safety side and maybe are there lessons learned from how that process has worked that um you know we should be reflecting on
0: Sure, we actually have a dedicated uh, safety and regulatory program within the Hydrogen Council. And uh, my colleague, Andrei Trivilev, is uh, the director for this program and is the lead, our lead for safety and regulatory. Andrei has uh, some 40 years of experience in the hydrogen industry, so I wouldn't be able to cover the safety matters as well as, uh, as he would. But I would just mention that we have actually carried out funnel gap analysis and out of some 400 safety topics, we have identified 11 topics in six priority areas. And those include, for example, safety culture, refueling, gas and storage, liquid and gas and storage, large scale electrolysis. On these topics, we are working both within the Council with our membership, but importantly, also with ISO and ISO TC 197 as well as the dedicated um, structure within IEA Hydrogen TCP. So we're focusing on um, moving the needle and really um, closing the gap on these priority issues. Um, As we said, Chris, uh, there is a history of international cooperation um, safety standards in hydrogen, and there is a lot to build on. And I think that some of the topics that we are looking at As we are moving to large-scale deployment of hydrogen and also to the uptake of hydrogen as an energy vector, that, of course, means that the areas and the the safety topics that uh, hydrogen industry already has a lot of experience on um, are expanding. And, um, yeah, there is there there is ongoing cooperation at global level and continued cooperation at global level on safety standards. And, um, yeah, ourselves at Hydrogen Council, together with the experts in ISO, uh, are working to advance those, and we have, again, identified some priority areas to focus on in the short to medium term, and we're tackling those, and we will be expanding uh, those focus areas going forward.
3: I mean, on, still on the topic of standards, but, but back to what we were ta- discussing in terms of how you calculate carbon content or having one methodology to actually determine what the carbon content is, if it's, you know, well to wake or, or, you know, um, well to uh, tank or, you know, also different options that there are and what you're going to include with the creation of blue when you're using um, a fossil fuel as the base and you're using, you know, steam methane reform, are, are we confident that policymakers can create A standard that will also take um, the capture rates and the storage into account, that that we will have a very clear understanding and belief that the amount of carbon capture has occurred that uh, would make it low carbon. And also that there is somewhere that they can actually store the carbon for a very long time. Does this seem um, like a doable regulatory task? Um, And do we think our policymakers are up to it? How do we solve that? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you,
0: Alicia. And I think whether it's uh, CCS-enabled hydrogen that comes from natural gas or whether it's renewable hydrogen produced from uh, renewable power, what will play an absolutely critical role is transparent and robust certification. Uh, there are some very important lessons that we have learned from the biofuels world, making sure that the certification solutions and the, the schemes that are being implemented at national level are robust, transparent, and are tradable. That will play a critical role in, first of all, building trust among the consumers, also in helping use certification for uh, policy implementation purposes. Again, if you want to introduce some form of a if you, if uh, a country would like to choose um, a target or um, a type of a quota scheme, then the certification can become a very practical tool for that, because really, what um, the way you would use certificates is to evidence that a given unit of hydrogen has a certain carbon footprint associated with production and or conditioning and transport. So, uh, regardless from the pathway, uh, the production pathway. The, what certificate does it provides that transparency and evidences. Uh, um, a range of sustainability attributes, those can include and primarily will include carbon footprint but also information on, for example, the use of land, the use of water, and other and some of the socioeconomic impacts of the projects. So yeah, certification can definitely play an important role in enabling transparency and transparent evidencing of um, different production pathways. Uh, as well as transportation pathways going forward.
3: So I think you've just proven um, through this conversation how difficult it is to reach simplicity and certainty. You know, there's just uh, a lot of um, complexity. But I, I really hope that we are able to achieve some of these goals of uh, because it definitely will speed up the investment and get this industry moving faster, I think, with easier uh, regulations to understand. Um, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to hear from a real expert in many of these areas, but but certainly um, regulations and, and certification. So thanks so much. Thank you.
2: So, Alicia, that was that was an interesting one. What what kind of uh, what kind of stuff stood out to you in particular?
3: Well, um, she spoke a lot about this sort of the, the certification and the regulations and and how interwoven they are. They're sort of one. They're sort of two sides of the same coin. It's really important in order for us to have regulations. We first need to make sure that we're talking about the same products, right? Um, so working on it together, having one entity or one group or somebody who's looking at both sides of the coin, I think is really important. And she, she has a really interesting background that really qualifies her for that position. One of the things that she she didn't really touch on, and she touched on it a little bit, but not so much, um, was the the sustainability aspect. And there there are a number of hydrogen um, entities or organizations that people belong to but hydrogen council actually is one of the few that is dedicated to the un sdgs they are dedicated to sustainability and in the construction of these of certification they are also trying to include the other factors the socioeconomic impacts um, she works heavily with uh, COP and with other sort of uh, UN organizations to make sure that this is not just a Green New Deal for the North, but uh, the global South also gets to gain from, um, from this hydrogen economy. And um, I think it's a fascinating and extremely important role. And, and, and she is just so talented. And there there are a lot of things coming down the line that I think are, are just going to be great across the board to, to solve some of that problem of the West causing all of the pollution and then the global South having to face higher pricing or, or basically being penalized uh, when they never caused the pollution in the first place. That's the beauty of hydrogen is that we can actually not only provide obviously a clean fuel, but it's an opportunity for a lot of countries to produce hydrogen and to be involved in the green fuels economy and, and build a complex economy for the first time. So I think that's really her goal. I'm, I'm very uh, aligned, I guess I would say. <laughs> I really appreciate uh, what she's working on in all aspects.
2: I suppose you know this. This is something that relates directly to your to your own work as well. But like you know that um, that rollout to you know develop these next generation fuels, these next generation molecules, and therefore the the reliant industries is is hugely you know, challenging in in a whole heap of ways. But it's also particularly capital capital intensive as well. You know, one of the questions that I think that kind of would immediately emerge when you think about that kind of uh, balancing and, and kind of opportunity um, for these next generation sectors. You know, how do, how do you how do you you know kind of integrate that ESG approach into contemplating you know the financing in in these emerging markets and, and places which historically have of you know got the the rough end of the the kind of the deal. Uh, how do we how do we enable these transitions? Maybe.
3: Well, I I think. Um... Most of the capital that's interested in these large projects that are very CapEx intensive, as as you know, tends to also be interested in moving to greener investment. They tend to be sovereign wealth funds or or just uh, even funds from countries that are interested in decarbonization. It sort of goes hand in hand. Uh, you don't often see investors that are only interested in decarbonization. They also seem to be interested in, obviously, the socioeconomic impacts.
2: So, you know, thinking about those those kind of broader ESG kind of engagement targets, um, you know, the, the kind of the need for that capital, especially in these these capital intensive projects. You know, obviously there's a big role for the multilateral development banks, the World Banks, the, you know, the Inter-American Development Banks and all the others Asian Development Bank. Um, you know, it's interesting kind of, maybe as a follow-on, like like the role that they have to now step up and play, um, because I, I'm going to, you know, hypothesize here, I don't think there's too much of a stretch, but it's, you know, their involvement in accelerating this in, in some of some of these kind of emerging regions is going to help Accelerate private capital deployments as well. And you know this is where you get to tell me, Patrick, you know nothing about finance and you know stick to your lane. but you know is, is that the reality on the ground?
3: I think so, absolutely. I mean, um, the World Bank has always brought with it sort of help with uh, country risk and political risk and, and some of the things that you might expect to find in in the global south. Um, so having them on your side is is helpful. And, and that tends to help developers or, or you know, anyone doing project finance. It, it helps them to get the financing to have, you know, a World Bank or a multilateral on your side. And also, of course, I mean, that is their interest, right? They are interested in the global south. That's where their mandate is. And and this is a great investment opportunity that can actually not only be a product that a number of, of global south countries can make but it's it's also infrastructure for a much more complex economy so I mean I think that they're they're very interested in being supportive uh, of this and uh, there there are obviously our countries that have not had fossil fuel uh, wealth or, or, or Potentially any real products at all, um, and and they do have renewables. So this is going to be um, a really a big opportunity for a number of countries, and and I think that, uh, but by, by building it out sort of from the infrastructure side, then they can they can attract different industries. Um, they can run on a, a green electrons and, and green hydrogen. Uh, they can they can build sort of their new green deal, which seems like it's been a, a lot a long time coming, a, a lot longer than even you know since Roosevelt.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, for sure. Here, here's here's one that I I, I you know I, we obviously didn't ask it, but I think it's a fair kind of contemplation. You know, the hydrogen council, as you flag, has been around for for from from for quite a while now, but also from a very early stage and how is that going to evolve or, or what role do we do we have for, for organizations of that nature, you know, given that this this market is starting to now come into being, albeit possibly a lot bigger and a lot quicker than we'd half expected. One of the one of the pieces for me around this is that like it, it's all well and good for advocacy and general engagement when the market is immature, but, but like as you as you move into these kind of more you know um, known use cases, volumes start to increase, people deploying capital, you know, it strikes me that there's something of a role for you know an entity of credibility to start actually playing a role in these um these emerging markets or advocating for you know uh, consistency maybe in the regulatory kind of standards across some of these markets so as not to. You know, undermine or, or impinge um, kind of kind of these the kind of the emerging markets' ability to access the more mature markets and you know improve project economics. I don't know if I don't know if that's something that 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 we we really will see that you know the hydrogen council do, but I wonder when we contemplate all the entities out there, you know, where this kind of transition moment starts to really kick in.
3: I, mean, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, people are very aware that we need to have agreement on certification. I, I think that that's the most important thing, and and how that we measure things and how we record them and keep track of them is almost more important, or it is more important. It is it's the first level of importance um, to having you know standard regulations across the the globe. So you know, even if one country or one area decides that they think that 80 percent carbon removal is just good enough um, and another one says, no, we we've, we've, we want completely green, what we need is to be able to agree upon how we calculate that number. Um, and, and that's where um, Hydrogen Council is, is really important and is working with ISO standards, is working with different organizations so that we can have agreement on at least the way that we calculate the carbon content and, and also um, methane and a number of other factors, which is where we roll in the sustainability as well. So, you know, it, it won't just be about carbon. As, as you know, there, there are many other things that um, have negative externalities and it, that is expected to be included in sort of the, the certification I think they are working on that now. They're working with all of the right groups, um, and internationally, it, it will be very helpful. And it's absolutely necessary for us to have a global trade. Um, I mean, otherwise, we just you know <laughs> forget comparing apples to apples. We we won't know what an apple looks like, <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think you know one of the uh, as a, as a follow-on to it, you know, we we obviously want. Want to as clean a molecule in every sense of the word as we possibly can for for all these potential use cases and one of the the big enablers here will be the lowest cost kind of production and some of that will come from you know, regional trade some degree of floating pro commodity related commodity prices as they emerge um, because otherwise you you know. The volatility aspect, you know, potentially starts to kick back in as well, right? Supply shortage, or, or for that matter, just you know, higher cost production having to co- come online. So there's there's a a market sustaining aspect of need here that that kicks in as well, which is which is going to be quite important, um, especially as we deploy at scale. So I think. I think big challenges uh, ahead of us in terms of a few of these kind of pieces around interconnective tissue and and, and kind of the, the related kind of, um, I guess, uh, regulatory and market forming kind of uh, requirements.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I, I think that's why a lot of people think that this will sort of follow. LNG, where you have offtake agreements first, and you, you or you know, if you want to look at green corridors, or there's lots of these um, sort of uh, initiatives, so that you can you can work on a one-to-one basis, or you you can work in a smaller context and and sort of get the kinks out, and then you know try to establish a a more common agreement that that creates a, a real market that's that's trading and and that is um, in not just um, off takes but is but is actually um, moving and and dynamic. It's a good thing uh, we have people like Daria working on this, and I've I've had the pleasure with working with her directly as a steering committee member of the Hydrogen Council, and and mostly focused on the sustainability uh, sort of committee of that. Um, I mean, we're on a number of the committees, but uh, I myself am more personally involved with that one. And uh, I'm just really impressed with the work that she's done and everything that is taken into account. And it makes me feel very optimistic, I would say, despite all of the Despite all of the challenges ahead of us, um, all of the complication, I, I feel very optimistic that we have uh, the right people working on it and working on it for the right reasons. And and that, that, that's what makes me, I think, um, much more comfortable dealing with these, these issues and we will tackle them one by one. But I think we're aligned with what we want to get accomplished. And It's 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 we have a real uh, treasure at Hydrogen Council with Daria and uh, very happy about it. Great to hear from her.
1: And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Alicia, Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter, that at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen.